Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Amel Cranenberg. Before I start though, I would like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders past and present and those of all other First Nations people who may be listening today. On today's show, May travels from Australia to Loveland, Nebraska to claim the house on the poisoned lake, a mysterious legacy in her grandmother's will. She will use it to escape her controlling husband, but will Loveland offer refuge or something else? As May repairs the old house, she delves into her grandmother, Casey's, past and starts to unearth its dark secrets. As the story shifts between May's life and Casey's 50 years earlier, the connections grow and it soon becomes starkly clear how far both must go to truly escape. Robert Lucan's lyrical new novel, Lovelands, blows life into this imagined town in Nebraska as he pulls at the generational legacy of family violence and the courage it takes to survive. That's all going to be coming up uh, very, very soon. I'll be chatting with Robert Lukens about his latest novel and the craft behind it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to 3 Triple R. The show is Backstory and I'm Mel Cranenberg. At the lake's middle, the currents and winds united to have the boat stop dead. May's arms were sore, so she pulled in the oars and straightened her back. The boathouse was directly in front, maybe 200 metres away, and to both sides the water bent in long curves, this desperate-looking crimson. It seemed to simmer She closed her eyes. That's a a reading from Robert Lucan's uh, novel, Lovelands. In Lovelands, May travels from Australia to Loveland, Nebraska, to claim the house in the poison on the poisoned lake, a mysterious legacy in her grandmother's will. She will use it to escape her controlling husband, but will Loveland offer refuge or something else? As May repairs the old house, she delves into her grandmother's, Casey's, past and starts to unearth its dark secrets. As the story shifts between May's life and Casey's 50 years earlier, the connections grow and it soon becomes starkly clear how far both must go to escape. Lovelands really blows life into this imagined town in Nebraska as uh, Lucan's pulls at the intergenerational legacy of family violence and the courage that it takes to survive. 
Robert Lukens joins me now to talk about his book and the craft behind it. Robert, welcome to Backstory. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, I was saying to you just before off air that uh, I really enjoyed reading this book and I honestly have to say there are very difficult themes that you cover mm. and I certainly uh, want to let anyone know um, that there may be some trigger warnings for particularly family violence in our discussion. But I have to say that the way you have written it is utterly beautiful. Um, you've, you've kind of given this, uh, you know, real sort of sensitivity to the interior life of the characters that carries you along with them and softens some of the harder edges of the book leading into what I think is quite an empowering uh, sort of message or ending somewhat. Um, I won't get too much into it. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about this this book uh, and particularly uh, the way that you've framed it around uh, a Nebraskan small town. Can you talk a bit about the setting of the book and, and why you came to, to place it there? Yeah, yeah. Like it's, the, it's the question everyone asks, this, um, you know, kid from Queensland, why to write a book in Nebraska? I guess when I was about 10 years old, I remember looking through my family vinyl collection um, and amongst all the, like, pseudo-echo and Eurogliders, I remember finding Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska record. Um, and, and the front cover of that album is this incredibly striking photograph taken uh, from the inside of an old American pickup and there's snow built up on the hood and it, the camera is looking out to this impossibly distant and an impossibly flat Nebraskan horizon. And as I said, at the time I was this like fluoro board short wearing zinc creamed up sunshine coast kid. So this image was the most... It was just the most alien, fantastic image I could imagine. And I became fixated on, on Nebraska, what this what this thing could be. And I think for a long time I had Nebraska confused with Alaska. But I kind of sort of had that after a while. But to this Sunshine Coast kid, this image was something from another planet. And Nebraska just kind of became this place that I imagined into existence. And and as the years went on, I... I as I said, I became kind of fixated on what this place could be and I read everything I could get my hands on, history books about its people and origins. and But that all combined with this kind of personal mythology I built up in my imagination. So I guess the Nebraska that I've built in this novel is this sort of place somewhere between reality and this, this utter invention of a child. Yeah, look, and I think, I mean, what what's sort of miraculous about that is that you have actually blown life into it, as I, I mentioned in the introduction, mm. that it is a, uh, a creation of yours, but it's one that feels utterly real. I guess anyone, I mean, talking about Alaska, I, you know, grew up watching Northern Exposure, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and look, that's, uh, that is, uh, you know, essentially this sort of eccentric small town that you've somewhat yeah. created. Yeah, yeah, and I, I suppose the thing for me too about Nebraska took on this sort of been quite oversized um, place in my sort of psyche as a child. Um, it, it became this almost a place of last resort. I know I just always thought if my life went entirely wrong, like irredeemably wrong, I could always escape to Nebraska. It was this, it was this great blank space on a map, and it was it was the kind of place you could disappear into. So in writing this novel, I, I, these central characters had, had come to this moment of last resort in their lives. And so it seemed a completely natural thing to me to have these characters 
live in and come to Nebraska because it was it was this mythological Nebraska I'd dreamt of as a child. And it was a place I knew so well. This was a place that I used to, in a sort of cliche way, sit cross-legged on the floor and stare at this album cover and just kind of dream of this place. And so it, it never seemed strange to me to put Nebraska in this novel because Nebraska's, the Nebraska of my imagination is one I know so well. Yeah, there is this kind of notion of a fantastical escape that's going on with this setting and you sort of lean into it by drawing in the idea of, of big nothing, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on a little bit more because I want to yeah. tease out how that's come into being. But before we do that, I, you know, I have certainly talked about small town settings before on this show and there's one thing that constantly, you know, intrigues me about why they're so freaking creepy. Like what is it <laughs> that, about the small town setting that you expect, you know, is going to have some element of horror to it. Yeah, I guess they sometimes feel like they're, well, they, they often talk about, if you ever go to a writing workshop or something, they talk about this idea of putting putting parameters on your story, that if you if you set your novel just in the world, that's too too big to, to kind of tackle in a novel. So a small town to me is almost just like everything we know about life and each other, but just boiled down. It's like a gravy that's been left on the pot too long. So all the elements of life get boiled down and boiled down until they're incredibly strong and thick. So I suppose there is that idea of a, a small town being almost like a like a plug hole and all, all of life and society and its people get drained down into the centre. Um, and then, you know, there's an idea too of being trapped and what happens when, when things are left to not be influenced by the outside world for a long time, what can develop in that place. But um, I never thought I would be a person that would write a, a, a novel in a small town. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, all, you know, it's something that's kind of disparagingly commented about novels, and I do it too. Like, oh, here we go, another novel set in a small town. And I went ahead and did it. Well, I mean, I think... Uh... To be fair to you, this is it is kind of gothic, really, isn't it? It's this idea of, you know, and I think that the gothic setting, and I'm no expert, I have to own, is, mm. is really one where, you know, the real horrors are kind of happening outside of that world and you've brought them in with you. Yeah. So the, there's a literal kind of haunting um, that goes on. And I think that this is one of those classic moments where, you know, what has actually happened is bigger and beyond this place, but this is the site where it will play out. And I think that that's a, it's a kind of a, I guess, a metaphor for, for everything that's happened. Do, did you kind of knowingly sort of, you know, create this, this idea where it's like a, I've created a space where I can map out a fictional rendering of something that is obviously a bigger societal ill, the crime and the real crime, if you like. Yeah, um, definitely not, <laughs> only because of the way I write, which is, it is, it's shocking the way I write, the complete, the complete lack of planning and structure, uh, so it's it just, I can never be subject to that, I think there's kind of this quite fair assumption that, that writers sit down and they ponder their themes and they ponder the kind of questions they want to play out in their narrative and then they sit down and write it out and I, for me I only wish it was that simple because to, to me it's, it is just about completely diving into a blank page and I'm, I'm figuring out what the novel is about as, as it goes along. It's interesting So I actually read an interview uh, that you did some time ago with the Saturday paper and I think, oh no, it was actually relatively recently, I think it was in reference to a Campion film, but you talk yeah. a bit about writing in it and you say 
There's an unspoken expectation that you write a book once you've come to a conclusion, decided what your themes are, you've had a great thought, computed it, and then you want to capture that on paper. But with me, the novel is finding itself as you're writing it. Can you discuss that a little more? You kind of yeah, touched on it. Well, that's, that's absolutely my experience of it. And I, and I, goodness me, I wish that wasn't the case, to be honest. But it's, um, it's, to me, it's part of the... Look, we all have to find reasons to keep writing. Like, in, in, if you're writing literary fiction in Australia, you're doing it for something very private and motivating within yourself. And for me, it's the it's a genuine thrill of writing. To me, writing is a... It, I'm not sitting there stroking my chin, pondering what the next word should be and, like, kind of soberly editing a word. To me, it's, it's, a, it's a really sort of high-wire act, high-energy... Um, improvisation on a page. It's it's genuinely thrilling. My heart rate increases when I write. I love doing it. And I think there's something, for me, there's just something so exciting and the, the unlimited potential of diving into a scene or diving into a blank page and not knowing where it's going to go. And if you've, to me, it's so much about, I build up these, not even, I don't map out these characters. I don't write these sort of elongated character sketches, but I, I just live with these characters and I live with these these settings for a long time until I just have a sense of their sort of atmosphere and their flavour. And so when I go into writing a, a scene or a page or even a whole novel, I'm essentially just like propping up these little toy people and putting them in a, in a sort of Lego setting and, and improvising. Just saying, I'm like a director. It's honestly what it feels like. I just say, OK, let's have a vague idea where this scene's going. Let's just see what happens. And these actors, these characters play it out. And at the end, I either say great work, it's a wrap, let's move on to the next one, or more often than not, it's just, okay, okay, let's backtrack, let's try that one again. And so th to me it is just that, it, it feels much closer to something like, like I don't want to push the metaphor too hard, but it feels more like a kind of jam, it feels like I'm in a band jamming, or it feels like I'm on a stage just, just dancing to some music, it feels much more improvisational, and that to me is... That's what keeps me going back to the page every day because there's no sensible reason to do it. It's because it's, it's just, it's absolutely thrilling and it honestly is. And I, I used to kind of shy away from saying that because I have so many writer friends who, they seem to just, out, it's like this terrible experience. <laughs> so, but for me, it's, I just absolutely feel euphoric when I'm writing it because of this kind of just freestyle element. And I guess that's, the thrill of it to me is I look at the page afterwards and I just don't know where this stuff came from. I think that's, that's an interesting point that I want to pick up on because I think it's also the reason why writers find it very difficult to come to the page. Um, you know, I remember a friend once saying, I think they'd gone to, you know, an exhibition at Mona where, you know, you could look inside the workings of a, you know, stylized workings of a brain, which has a whole lot of, you know, mm. like flipping birds in it and things like that. Um, yeah. And she was looking at it and suddenly had this realisation, you know, which of course is an obvious one that, you know, the conscious part of our brain is, is not the one that is the great repository of all we gather. Um, the unconscious is. And, and that mm. feeling of things suddenly popping up as though, you know, they've kind of come to us from on high or from within is literally yeah. what's happening. We we access the unconscious in unusual ways and sometimes painful ways, I think, for people when they're, they're staring at the blank page. I'm delighted to hear you have a, a lovely yeah, euphoric well, experience. It's, it's, no, it's something that I... Uh, it's something I love and, and detest at the same time because, unfortunately, I just... I rely entirely on the unconscious. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's thrilling and it's... 
but it's it's a very low hit rate approach to writing. Sometimes I look at my writing friends who have studied writing and they, they sort of have an analytical approach and they and I'm sure they tap into those those moments as well, but I just that's the only way I can write. I can't sit there and I'm not a craftsperson. I can't I'm never gonna be for the painting analogy, I could never sit there and do a, a grand portrait that takes eighteen months to paint. I'm much more of a canvas on the floor cigarette in the mouth, looking pain at the floor, seeing what happens kind of guy. So it's, it's, um, so it's, it's fun for me, but it's, um, it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I do want to talk about how you feed that subconscious, though, because there's obviously evidence of it littered throughout this, this book. Um, there yeah. are themes that emerge and it was impossible for them not to, I think, in some instances, particularly, you know, the lake and water and the idea of accumulated yeah. rubbish or, you know, which you've already said is in a, in a way what the town is doing it's burying secrets um yeah but let's talk about an element that i found quite uh, delightful as well and that is music um and how it, it kind of winds its way into what you write yeah. about um can you discuss that element of the book yeah well there's a so Elliot Smith, is very, and it's funny, even when I say these things out loud, like, I can't believe I wrote a novel set in a small town, and I can't believe that Elliot, Elliot Smith is a recurring motif of this novel, but there is a lot of my writing practice is about kind of just getting out of my own way and just letting these things appear on the page if they float up. But yeah, so this, and particularly this one Elliot Smith song, The Ballad of Big Nothing, um, is very central to one of the central characters' stories, and it's, it's something that threads its way through the whole the whole novel and to be honest that's something that I just and it almost feels like cheating to admit to but that's just something I stole entirely from my own life so when I was about and this is something that the main character May experiences in the story when I was about 20 I was seeing a psychiatrist and they were sort of trying to teach me a, a, a bit of a trick a bit of a, a trick to play on my mind and it was that in a moment of crisis to have a song that I know incredibly well and to just internally sing that song to myself. And the idea was supposed to be that by going to this very familiar place and singing the song, you build this space, even if it's just for a moment. In that moment of crisis, you build this three minutes in which your heart rate can drop down and you can get your breath back and you can you can sort of start to ground yourself again. Um, and the only thing I'd say is if you're going to do this trip, don't pick a song that you really love because you develop a very strange relationship with that song over time because it's it's the soundtrack to your crises, but it's also your salvation in that moment. So that song, Ballad of Nothing, has, has an incredible sort of presence in my psyche and it, and it comes to have one for me. Um, and then as the novel went on, even just that, I, I don't know how familiar you are with that song, but it's centres around this idea of, of big nothing. And it's just such an intriguing abstract concept thrown into this quite literal song. This, like, what is big nothing? And it kind of, the idea kind of developed in my mind that big nothing was almost this, what's that, what's that great thing on the horizon that if it came, you would be frozen in fear? What's the, whether it's some existential thought about the universe or whether it's something literal and it's a person or it's a memory or it's something you've inherited from your family, there's almost this idea that over the horizon there's something that if you saw it coming towards you, you'd be absolutely, you wouldn't be able to speak through fear. And so this idea of big nothing and what that was took on this big presence in the novel. And so for May, she has this... Um, these uh, almost imagined experiences when she's she's out on this lake and she 
sort of finally having reached this moment of great crisis in her life, just succumbs to this idea of big nothing. Just she finally lets go and just lets this kind of fear wash over her, really. So all these things kind of swirl together. Um, and so it's, it's almost something literal for me. She's through this novel, she's the soundtrack in her head is, is out of big nothing. Well, it, it does beg the, uh, the opportunity to play that track, which I hopefully will be able to queue up shortly. We'll see how well that goes, uh, Robert. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to your Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm speaking with author Robert Lukens about his latest novel, Lovelands. Robert, I have so much more that I would like to speak with you about uh, this book. I feel like we've barely even scratched the surface yet. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. That's Jaguar John's Little Fires, and at the top of that bracket, I played Elliot Smith's the Ballad of Big Nothing. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And today I'm speaking with author Robert Lukens about his new book, Loveland. Robert, uh, we did rather pointedly play that Elliot Smith track and I just realised there was some resonance as well with the track immediately afterwards. Um, not entirely unintentional, I think, but um, I won't get too much into that because I think that there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of themes that people will uncover as they go through the book. Uh, I do want to touch on this, and this is a, a, an area that, that I may need to, to give a little bit of a trigger warning for. Uh, we will have a discussion around family violence, uh, and I'll offer some um, uh, numbers at the end of the, um, of the show to make sure people are covered who may be triggered by that. Uh, but there is a very particular um, storyline that goes on between May and her mother, Casey, who has passed away, leaving her the legacy of this property. The property has been left to May by her mother and the idea of, of offering it to May is to give her a chance to leave her controlling husband. Uh, as she comes to know more about her grandmother's story, you realise that there is a very strong connection between the two of them in terms of their own experiences of, of this particular form of, of control and that they, you know, obviously have had to do quite extreme things to get away from it. Can we talk a bit about how this plays out across the the fifty year time period in the book? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's really the centre of the novel, and it's it's it's, it's somewhat uh, difficult to discuss because really, it's so intertwined in the story. But I suppose it, uh, to me, it centres on these these essential family unit, and when I think of May and her mother Rosie and grandmother Casey, I, I do think of them as almost as just this intertwined unit. And so the lives of these women, this three generations, they're, they're so intertwined and in so many ways mirror each other, but there are, these, there are these barriers to them fully connecting with each other, truly connecting. And, and in some way, this idea almost each generation feels the sense of guilt for what they're passing on to the next. Uh, they wish they could have provided more. They, they materially and in the sense of security. Uh, so these women whose lives are running in such such close parallel uh, are almost in, eternally frustrated at, at these barriers between them. There's almost there's just this there's this sort of clear glass screen between them, and the circumstances of their lives mean that 
that emotional security seems almost a luxury, that they, these, these women are so tired, these women are so exhausted simply with the task of, of maintaining their lives, maintaining their material security. And then there's this, this fourth character, Jean, the, the older lady who was, who was very close to Casey in her time in Loveland in the 50s. She comes into this story as this kind of external, almost a circuit breaker. She's this, she's this <laughs> wild, unbridled element that, with May being outside of her home experience and finally away from her husband and in this, in this blank space of, of Loveland, Jean kind of almost infuses her with this sense of space, with this sense of energy of being able to just kind of look at her own life for the first time. She's able to just take a breath. Um, and so in a lot of ways, the, the rest of the novel is, is about that, sort of what happens given this sort of brief moment, this brief chance. Yeah, these ideas of, an, of a generational entrapment somewhat by, you know, the silence or the lack of kind of acknowledgement of what is happening uh, without, you know, giving it name or giving it, uh, you know, an yeah. understanding. I guess this is a reflection of what society has done with family violence. And you reflect both the the inheritance for the, the female characters here, but also uh, May's son is also someone who yeah. you can see is obviously a victim of this and potentially could be, um, you know, in a position to repeat the past as well and I think these themes are kind of you know are pulled out throughout um especially I think you know some of the the features that you're showing of these these kind of you know the quiet coercive control and how that's built mm. around these structures is, is really quite powerful yeah I think and I suppose that this novel existed in very different forms over the last few years com completely separate completely rewritten forms and when it began it, it, it honestly never in, was never intended to be a novel it wasn't anything I was going to even attempt to, be, to get published it was just one of these sort of elongated thought exercises that I seemed to just <laughs> need to do and, and I guess the, the thing I do is I write that's the way I in the same way that I write a novel to sort of figure out what the novel's about I just write to try and sort of tie loose threads in my brain together and and when this started, I, I really wanted to interrogate and really face this idea of male control and the idea of, of the different expressions of that. I mean, is this something... It kind of started with the central question. Is this something that all men carry buried within themselves, this sort of capacity that men hide even from themselves? And is this in me, like, Robert Lukens, is this in me? And when I first started writing this, it was never a novel. It was, it was me thinking on a page and trying to face up to this stuff to see because where does this stuff come from? We all, everyone I speak to says it's not them, and everyone says this. You know, this is always it's always other people, but it's it's men who do this, and we're we're the men. So it's everyone thinks it's happening somewhere else, but it's not. It's coming from within us. So. I initially wrote, a, I suppose, when this started becoming more of a story, initially, and again, this never was intended to be published because the world doesn't need to read this version of the novel, but I fully explored these male characters. I, I wrote about their upbringing, their family relationships, uh, the lives they had led, trying to get down to the kernel of this stuff, where, where this comes from. And I wrote that version of the story again and again. I think I probably wrote about six 
completely rewritten, from scratch versions of this novel, trying to interrogate these men. And in the end, I found a lot of reasons and a lot of excuses, but no justification, obviously. And, and, and having lived with these characters for so long, I started to consider like my role as the author in within the universe of this novel, the one great power or privilege that I can give to a character is providing their perspective, putting their experience at the centre of the story. So in the end, it became a... Having spent six novels with these men, it became a conscious, punitive act from me to push these men's experiences outside of the novel. Mm-hmm. So the men are in the novel through their actions and their culpability, but I would not centre these men. This is the novel of the experiences of these women and how they exist. Yeah, and look, that does, I think that a sense of the men's dimensionality, although the the acts are very much perceived through the women's eyes, you know, isn't entirely lost. And I think that kind of thing is quite important. They're not monsters, they're they're getting away yeah. with something that society has condoned, um, let's be honest. And and one of the great frustrations, I, I suppose, you know, in the book is, of course, that um, that the women are essentially on their own in dealing with it in many ways, although that does um, that does change as you as you see. Obviously, May is given this opportunity, is that moment when things could change. But having that 50-year time span and essentially a very yeah. similar story happening is very uh, is very telling that these things uh, have not changed a great deal over time. Sadly, yeah, and, I think it, and it was important to me to kind of bring this idea of that, and obviously not to, because it is, as well as all these, these kind of ideas, it is still a, a novel. I was trying to write a, a novel, not a, um, this isn't an essay on on this man's take on <laughs> violence. But uh, I suppose ultimately it, it becomes really important that the opportunity for some for these people to have some form of space or escape comes through through sort of privileged material means. This woman at the start of the novel suddenly inherits a, a house, and so there's this breathing room given by that, and that's something that so you know that's something incredibly incredibly rare. So I suppose I wanted to tap into some kind of idea of this, these are opportunities that we don't all have. Absolutely, and I think that that does very clearly come across, um, you know, that she didn't see a way out. There's a, you know, this kind of cycle is it's a part of that and it's a really, really well covered, I think, in this book too. Mm. Uh, I do want to focus on some of the elements around this. Uh, there is a really um, nicely kind of covered difference between the time frames, but you've also given both women that you're bringing to life a great sense of their own specificity within that. One of the things that I, I quite liked, and of course, you know, as a writer, you've you've placed books in your book, which is a thing that we're all guilty of doing, and I, I did enjoy it. Um, there is, a, you know, the character Casey uh, receives a box of books that her husband has designated as her reading, presumably to, you know, govern her brain into a particular shape that he wants. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, you know, these were all books written before 1936 and you talk about the, the books and that she's trying to find a new sense of self uh, that isn't the intended, con- you know, the intended consequence of yeah. what he's given her. How, you know... Did you feel as though this is a great statement on the capacity of books to be what the reader makes them, perhaps, or was there something else going on? Yeah, I think it's... I'm always... I know, it's funny, because my, my entire life is books. 
I've, I've worshipped books my entire life. I live and breathe through books. But I think sometimes there's this sort of slightly false prominence given to the sort of freeing and redemptive powers of books. There's this, So I think so often in books you read stories about someone in some kind of trapped situation or some kind of um, trodden-down situation, escaping through books, books of their salvation into the world. And I have a much more complex kind of understanding, not complex, but I think I have a more muddied understanding of that because I just don't know if that's necessarily the case. And I think it would be much more natural for me to write a novel, I suppose, that had these characters feeling trapped in their lives, but in the, within the pages of these books, they can feel free. And we have, in a way, we have, um, so we have May through this novel, who's never been a reader, mm. and through her life, she's, she's attempted to find this. She's sort of dabbled in this, and all through the novel, you find these sort of fragments of novels, and sometimes, literally, she finds a, a page of The Great Gatsby at the bottom of this lake. She picks up a, a Carson McCullough's novel at the at the thrift shop, and she she turns these pages, but it's to her it's just a she's still kept away from this kind of magical quality that books are supposed to have. So um, I don't know if that was I think I was trying to shy away from this idea that there are easy answers, or that reading a novel somehow makes you a more moral person, or reading novels makes you magically. Um, elevated. I think uh, I just didn't want to give her a simple solution like that. Yeah, and I think you haven't. And I, I also, what I, one of the things I think is quite interesting is this idea of, of books and which books you allow people to read being used as a form of control, which of course, yeah. you know, if you think about the canon that we've all read and who was included on that and who was not, the kinds of um, constructions of, you know, people of colour, women, those who yeah. are left out of the record, that sort of stuff is really quite telling I think as well, you know, books are just, I guess, at the end of the day, artefacts that you make of what you will, which, again, is something that Casey tries to do. She's like, this has been given to me for a reason. I'm going to try and use it for something else, which I think is what both women have done with what they've been given somewhat. Yeah, yeah, and that that, that legacy of the capital C canon hangs over us all and it hangs over the characters in this novel. And like I said, I, I live and breathe through books, and that's something I've always had to... I've really spent the last 20 years of my life trying to sort of deconstruct the programming I'd had as a youngster. So between the age of sort of 10 and 25, I was fixated on this idea of absorbing the capital C canon. I thought I thought that was what you were supposed to do. I thought you had to read all the Penguin classics, and, and they are invariably 19th century books written by men or occasionally by women from sort of elevated circumstances. And and that that is the bedrock of my reading experience. And that's something that I've very consciously and actively tried to sort of fight against for the last twenty years and that there's the world is much broader than that and it needs to be broken down. So I think there's a little bit of that I think showing through here that we just keep having these fragments all the novels featured in this in Loveland are these fragments of I guess like the, the epitome of the 20th century novel, The Great Gatsby, just turning up in the lake and her not finding in these pages what she's been told she's supposed to find. And in a way, it is just more flotsam or rubbish that's in the lake that's been thrown there that presumably once meant something to someone as well. Yeah. Uh, But it's, um, it's, you know, it's interesting too because I fight myself on this one because those books are who made me the person I was as well. So it's, you know, it's that idea we sort of we inherit the best and the worst of everything around us. Like we, 
the culture around us shapes who we are. We like this idea, we have internalised notions of the world that are incredibly hard to break free from. The, the, the ideas that we all got taught watching Hey Hey Saturday in the 80s, that, that's how I was taught how the world was. And, you know, so as much as these, you know, we have societies and cultures and ideas pressing on us from the outside, they're, they're inside all of us. Um, so I think I, I often wrestle with this idea that we're always fighting against... Uh, you know, how we were built. Mm, absolutely. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I'm speaking with Robert Lukens about his latest novel, Lovelands. Robert, uh, on this topic of, of books and reading, I did find a quote from you. I believe it was an interview that you did after the release of your first book, The Everlasting Sunday, which uh, was shortlisted for a, a bunch of prizes and I recommend to listeners to read, excellent book, um, you you said, I borrow almost entirely non-fiction from the library and most of that ends up being either art or architecture. <laughs> They're the books I'm most interested in and also the ones I can rarely afford to buy from the bookshop. I tend to just aimlessly browse so that I can discover books on subjects I might otherwise have never encountered. I love this. This is absolutely what I do, particularly in secondhand bookshops, uh, but also at the library. Can you talk a bit about this? Because it is, you know, obviously you're writing novels. Um, non-fiction is yeah. part of what feeds you from the sound of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's probably 60-40 non-fiction that I read. I think some of that's from... And I think I don't want to understate the sort of material aspect of it. Like when I was growing up, the library, uh, my brother and sister both, had, their first job was at the Sunshine Coast Public Library and my first job was at that same library. Libraries were... Such an incre- such an important place for me because uh, when I grew up, so when I was when I was younger, my family, my oh, I don't want to bring the violin out, but we did we we had, didn't have very many material means, and so we couldn't couldn't buy books. But the library was this place where I could, you know, a ten year old kid can go and open up this book and see sculptures in the middle of Rome or uh, the you know the, the history of irrigation or all these kinds of wild and wonderful things you otherwise wouldn't get access to and I think I still hang on to a lot of that so my favorite thing to do is to go to a library and and wander with absolutely no sense of purpose and pick up a book about some of some particular era of manga or some particular mm-hmm. period of metallurgy or something because uh, I, I love tapping into other people's fascination so when you when you read someone's book and, and someone else has devoted their life to copper or to, yes. or to uh, you know the waterside development or something and there's something so attractive about that I love being around anyone who's interested is fascinated with a particular topic and I think some of it also comes from the fact that I've never been able to settle on anything I've never had I don't have my one interest that has I suppose it's writing but I I'm much more of a sort of bowerbird reading little bits and pieces, and I so admire people who have have one particular um, sort of area that they just dig down into and and, and exhaust. And so I, there's something about um, that that I love tapping into. The democratisation of libraries was, of course, a hugely important thing, and we kind of forget about that a little bit in this era where we have so much access to to things, but they were expen- they're expensive books, still are. Um, yeah. Having public libraries is a great, you know, human right that has been fought for, I guess. Uh, you know, they used to just be private collections. I want to talk about uh, just, wow, I can't believe <laughs> so much of the hour has already flown by. Um, <laughs> perhaps even uh, to, to get you to sort of, you know, maybe finish up on a bit of a discussion of this. Another quote from uh, from the Saturday paper um, 
interview you did around the Campion film, uh, you talk about collaboration in writing. This is a, a great mm. interest of mine. Uh, I used to consider writing as an entirely solo pursuit and kept myself completely shut off. I was locking myself in the tower writing, but now I realise writing is as much a team sport as filmmaking. My new book is genuinely a collaboration with my publisher and editors, my agent, talking with readers and other writers. Art is so much stronger to me when it doesn't exist purely in the brain of one human. I now feel I exist in this ecosystem of people and I think opening myself up makes the work stronger. I think you've stated that so beautifully. I'd love you to talk more about it. Yeah, and it's, it's a genuine... It's not just something cute to say in an interview. It's really... Ch- I've, Something really quite mammoth has changed in the way I, not just the way I write, but just the way I, the way I live in the last few years. I think because writing was always, all I ever wanted to do was write, all I, my, since I was a, seven years old. And I think because it meant so much to me that the, the psychic result of what would happen if, if, it, if I stunk, if I wrote something and I couldn't do this thing that I longed to do so much, and I think as the years developed, that sort of manifested as me, as I said in that in that interview, quite literally locking myself in my in my room, writing these novels, and I would never let these novels out. So I wrote a novel every year since I was fourteen, and I would finish these novels and prove to myself somehow that that I I was serious about this because I'm just writing these for myself and as a sort of act of defiance I would I would just delete the novel or I'd print it out and just put it in the wardrobe and and as this kind of very childish room capital R romantic idea of what I thought a writer was is that I I was just doing it for itself or I was doing it for me or I was trying to teach myself how to write. And all those things are true. But it was also the act of someone who was deep down terrified of, of finally trying. What happens if I finally tried to be a writer and, and exist in the world through books and it didn't work? How could I sort of redefine who I was? So that's purely the way I existed until my first novel. And it's, 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 again, it's a very childish approach to something. Uh, and then the act of having that first novel come out, I've never met any other writers I've never done a writing workshop. I've never gone to a, to a book launch. I've never done any of these things as part of the writing community. And the last four years of my life has been entirely about just, as I said, becoming part of it. It really feels like I'm part of this, this ecosystem. And so I don't think I know best anymore. I don't think I know everything. I don't think you can solve art by sitting in your room within your own mind because it just kind of revolves around inside your skull. And I've just shed so many chips off my shoulder in the last four years. And so now when I think of writing now, I genuinely immediately think of my writing friends. I immediately think of readers that I've met at events. I I immediately think of emails I've been sent from people. I I immediately think of talking to my agent and my publisher. And there's something really scary about that initially because you have to really let go. You have to really let go of this stranglehold I had of my work for so long. Uh, but I think absolutely I feel like I'm genuinely part of a team now, and it sounds very trite, but it really is. And because what it means is that I can lean on these other people, and that means that I can try different things. I can. I feel like I was just firing this one brow for so many years, and I think if I would have just kept going like that, I would just I would get smaller and smaller and smaller with my scope, whereas now I feel liberated to try things because I have so many people to 
I mean, talk to her about it. As simple as that. Robert, that was just a lovely way to, to leave this interview. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts on writing and talking to me about your latest book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. That was uh, Robert Lucan speaking about Lovelands, uh, his latest book out now through Alan and Unwen. And if you or anyone else you know are affect, have been affected uh, by the themes we covered today, please call 1-800-737-732. That's 1-800-RESPECT. That's all we have time for today on Backstory. I would like to once again thank my guest, Robert Lukens, uh, recommend his book and uh, also thank the many people who make this show possible, especially our Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, the supportive force behind us all here. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.